Hi, and welcome back to the Jubilee Plus podcast. I'm Abby Thomas, and today I'm bringing you a seminar from the wonderful Churches That Change Communities Conference. The theme for 2023 was Standing in the Gap, and today we'll be hearing from Sam Ward from the Message Trust based in Manchester. Sam's seminar is called Church for the Chaotic. Okay, it's wonderful to be with you, everybody, and... uh... Filling in at the last minute, uh, it feels adequate really uh, to do a seminar on chaos when, uh, <laughs> when this was chaos to me at about 5pm on the M6 yesterday, travelling down just to join you and participate. And then and Natalie said, uh, could she ask for one more favour? <laughs> to be honest, she only ever rings me when she wants a favour. Um, to the point where there's an on-running joke with Natalie where I always reply to whatever she asks me, I ask for £10. Um, just to see how much I could try and build up. So, so far, I've earned enough to uh, pay for a family holiday in the Maldives. So, uh, it's good, it's good. But I love this topic. I, when she told me what was going to be shared, I thought, absolutely, this is something that I have some experience of. Um, they say, don't they, that, that, that organisations begin to represent the culture of their leaders and so the churches that I've been involved in, I suppose, have been by very nature chaotic. And I wonder if that's a reflection of, of me and who I am. There is some chaos that seems to come in and around me. Let me just introduce myself. Uh, beautifully done by Rachel. Uh, I do live in Manchester. I still live in the same neighbourhood that I moved into uh, 20-odd years ago. I moved as a part of a, a thing called Eden I considered myself an urban missionary. I moved from the suburbs into the inner city. Uh, I moved in as a single man. I married a girl uh, who lived at number six. I lived at number 18. We got married and moved into number 13. And uh, (laughs) Christian style. And uh, we adopted two children. I've got two little, uh, well, not so little these days, two adopted children that are really my my greatest joy. And I won't talk about them because I'll probably weep. Um, They are very, very precious to me. And uh, I continue to work out what ministry looks like, both nationally as I take the message trust forward in all the different ministries that we do. We have these things called community groceries that uh, are like a bridge between a food bank and a supermarket. We uh, still do Eden teams that relocate into neighbourhoods. We've got double-decker buses uh, that are like mobile youth centres that, again, head into deprived communities. Uh, we work in schools doing sort of sharing the gospel with young people, all sorts of initiatives, particularly around knife crime at the moment. And we work in prisons. Again, we are focused on meeting the hardest to reach and sharing the gospel in word and in deed. And that is my introduction. I am passionate about the church. People will say to me oh, that they think I'm passionate about the poor. And I am, but I've realised that the older I get, I'm actually more passionate about Christ. I'm more passionate about seeing the the kingdom of God come to bear. And it leads me, as I pursue Christ, into disadvantaged, under-resourced communities. Because it's there that I find Christ. And as I begin to pursue him and seek first his kingdom, that I seem to find myself in and around people that need to know the love of Christ and help from the church. And that's, I suppose, as I turn my heart towards Christ, he gives me his heart for the poor. And I think when, I'm, when I boil it down, it's first for Jesus. And Jesus gives me his heart and uh, all that I need to be able to serve the poor. And uh, that's really the mandate for my life. And so, uh, yes... 
I've planted churches. Um, in fact, I was trying to think the first time I got involved in a church plant. I was 15. Um, my dad decided he'd join a church plant team and he encouraged me to come. And so we planted a church into a deprived community in, in Manchester. And um, I remember as we sang and began to worship, that chaos was happening on the roof as young people were jumping up and down um, and thinking, oh my word, I'm not really sure I'm into this. As I committed my life to the mission of Christ, uh, our Eden team were given a chance to plant a church with the Salvation Army. I didn't even know the Salvation Army was a denomination. I thought they were like the St. John's Ambulance. I thought they did first aid, uh, which was a surprise that they're actually a brilliant denomination. And so we planted a church for them and uh, did that for years. And the amount of chaos that seemed to come was uh, absolutely wild. And I'm going to tell you a bunch of stories today. And then I'm also going to tell you some of the lessons that I've learned along the way. And hopefully we'll have some time for your questions and I'll do my best to answer those. Um, Wow. And then after we planted for the Salvation Army, then we planted from that church another church. And then I handed that over as I took a role within the message. And then I planted again with a friend into North Manchester, a place called Harper Hay. So I'm a bit of a serial church planter. The consistent thing is, is that the churches that I've been involved in have all been in under-resourced areas, areas of high deprivation, areas of high need. I feel like that is where the church should be. We should be filling the gap. The church is the answer. I firmly believe that Christ has an answer to the world's issues, but he's going to make that Um, outworking he's going to give the answer to us his people and we need to be the people that continue to say Lord uh, uh, help us perceive what you intend to do help us to be the answer and uh, I feel increasingly that that is what I need to spend my time doing listening to the heart of God and saying how should we the church respond and be your hands and feet so there you go Uh, I love uh, serving in urban contexts in the, amongst the poorest of the poor. But they are at times very, very chaotic. I remember times of uh, running a prayer meeting and then kids firing fireworks through the letterbox uh, because they thought we might appreciate that. I once brought a whole load of leaders round and I'd, I'd put this like big meal on to welcome other church leaders from around the city. And in with the church leaders came half my youth who then hid under the table and I was humiliated as all these church leaders were having the trousers pulled down by my youth that had uh, come to visit. I remember running youth club one night and, and um, being told I had to go and stop the old people that were having sex outside in the church garden. You know, and it's like madness. Like, what do you, how do you even, excuse me, guys, uh, that's beyond awkward. You could take this, you could take this home. Um, I've got a spare room at the back of the church. Like, like, how do we move this on? This is really, really bad. Our church was full of absolutely beautiful people whose lives were complex. And so when we talk about chaotic people, it's a term that I'm not overly comfortable with, but I'm aware that when we think about poverty and deprivation, it is by very nature complex. It's multifaceted. Rarely will you see someone attend our services, our church, our offering of community provision with just a single issue in mind. Poverty is complex by nature, and therefore people turn up with all sorts of things that they need help and support with. And, uh, and this is the kind of people that I've, I feel like I'm drawn to. At one point, I remember standing up at our church to speak and looking out and seeing 
around about 13 or 15 people that were all related to each other by the bedroom and thinking how complex it was that such and such had slept with such and such and she's got kids with him, him and him. And it was all sort of there, there displayed before my eyes. I began to hate Facebook because I'd see all these fights brewing during the week of such and such has said this and, and I'm no, I know on Sunday that's the place where everybody gathers together in one place. And I'd open the door with fear and trepidation and then everybody would come in normal, like smiles, like everything was cool. And they'd be like, it's been World War Three all week and then suddenly you're pretending that everything's fine. Um, there was... Uh, there are, my, my church features on three episodes of the Jeremy Kyle show um, because, because some of my people felt they needed to do their discipleship for the world to see. Uh, so you can imagine the kind of scenarios that we uh, have found ourselves in. Um, I can't tell you, well, I'd love to be able to list some of the most bizarre pastoral issues that I've had, but what's what's Fascinating, I suppose, is that they're always like um, in juxtaposition with amazing things that God is doing. I remember one young man that I was working with, and he decided he was going to volunteer in my charity shop. And he'd found on this bookshelf a, uh, a, a book about the uh, spiritual gifts. I found him behind the till, like devouring this book. And he declared as I walked over that the Lord had downloaded the gift of prophecy. And could he begin to show me his skills? And, uh, and so he's like prophesying all sorts of things. I'm like... Lord, I, I, I'm going to believe that you're in this somehow. Help me understand what's going on. But at the same time, I know about the brokenness of his life. I know about the complexities of the relational mess that he's in. I know that he's almost unemployable, that he's never had a job in his life, that his, his, his flat is beyond a pit. You know, you walk across um, uh, like food stuffs that are everywhere. And I'm like, this is the kind of position that we find ourselves trying to identify the things of God and then addressing the practical needs that are in and around us. I have so many stories. One of my favorite characters is a guy called Gary that I know and love. He still knocks my door. But when I led church locally, he used to come dressed as a samurai. And um, he, he declares no faith in Christ but he would stand at the back directly in my eye line with his hands like this, full samurai gear, just to let me know that he was present. You can sit down now, Gary. He would never speak. He would just stare. You know, this is the kind of bizarre things. But our churches were complex too because they were um, multi-ethnic and so you've got that complexity there, multi-generational. You know, there was all sorts of stuff going on. There was disabilities and different traumas, um, all sorts of child protection issues emerging at any point when you feel like you've reached the point of stability. And so I used to say when people said, how's church going? You'd almost certainly get the same answer every time. We are two weeks from revival. We are two weeks from being closed down. Like, this is the tension that I lived with, living and working around people for whom, like, there was no order. You know, you'd, I'd sometimes be on the door on a Sunday morning, and people would walk past, and I'd say, good morning, and they'd go, 
what? And I'd say, it's church, it's Sunday. And they'd go, it's Sunday? And church is on a Sunday? You'd be like, where were you last week at this exact time? But there's no rhyme or reason. There's no rotors. There's no diaries. There's no order to life. And yet the church somehow gets itself in a bit of a problem, doesn't it? Because we've got rules and regulations and and formations which everybody's got kind of slot into. Our ways of doing things. And I suppose over time, we've convinced ourselves that they're the righteous way. They're the way in which church should be. And then we encounter the world and its complexities. And there is this tension that we live with. And then you've got the the chaos of communication. What I'm speaking, is it heard? Is it listened to? I remember um, um, having to sort out a domestic violence issue with some uh, a couple in our church. I have this girl sitting with me who weeps as she begins to detail some of the things that she's been experiencing and my heart breaks and I say we're gonna we're gonna make some progress today I found somewhere for you to live you're gonna be safe and I'm gonna ask that you don't make any contact for the next season and I'm gonna take your boyfriend who also comes to my church I'm gonna find a way of of discipling him and I'm gonna journey his restoration and I'm going to hope and pray that we see change but I would ask in the short term you don't make contact you know let's let's just have some radio silence for a bit and she was through weeping she said yes 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 and as I prayed she she left the room and then disappeared out the door and so I remember uh, then going on my lunch to the local supermarket and it, it was a, it's a Morrison's and and there's a Morrison's cafe and there in the cafe is the girl and the boy sat opposite each other and I've said, just five minutes ago, I'd made progress. We were on a journey. We were seeing change come and now you've ignored everything that I've said. And I'm thinking, how long will it be before she calls me again to say that chaos has returned? Wild times, difficult times. Church for us was um, often interrupted. Uh, you know, I, I think about Sunday services and, you know, you'd get people shouting out, this is really awkward for me, how silent you guys are. You know, I dare not ask a rhetorical question in my church because it would be answered, you know, you know those scenarios. Or at any point, if I used a word that no one understood, I'd, I'd be questioned for clarification. And then I'd find myself down this weird little rabbit hole of, uh, of, of trying to explain. I remember speaking once and talking about the ascension. Why did I mention it? It wasn't even that important to my talk. What's the ascension? And I'm like, okay, so this is the moment where Jesus, uh, you know, and then they're like, what do you mean he went in the air? What do you mean the clouds covered his feet? What do you mean there's angels there? I'm like, my point was actually nothing to do with this, but I'm to, uh, it's gone. In a, in a moment, it's gone. The endless, the endless telephone calls while you're partway through your talk. That, you know, in, it, sometimes there's an awkward moment in these scenarios where someone's left it on and they really quickly sort of reach in the pocket to turn it off. In my church, you just take it out and answer it at full volume without any concern. There was one particular time, one of my favourite stories, I was speaking, and um, everybody began to be aware of this little voice in the room. Hello? 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 And I'm like preaching, and I'm like, can anybody else hear a voice? 
Can we stay quietly, just to make sure it's not God? <laughs> hello? 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 And eventually this uh, lady, larger lady on the front row, pulls down a top, reaches into her bra, pulls out the phone and goes, Oh, it's me! It's me! Yeah, yeah. And then she has the full conversation about <laughs> bread and milk that she'll pick up on the way from church, way home from church. I'm like mid-preach. And then she says... Sorry, everyone, I must have turned it on with my boob, right? <laughs> then pulling down her bra, she then places it back inside. And I'm just like... <laughs> turning your Bibles to the holiness of God. <laughs> Horrendous. And our church had this set of toilets that were behind the preacher. So sometimes people would walk between me and the lectern. <laughs> To, to go to the toilet, I'm just like, could you wait five minutes? But bladders in our church don't work to like any kind of clock um, or, or whatever. You can imagine how crazy some of the things were. For a season, we had a, a lady who sneezed um, just like that caused chaos to begin to break out. It was like multiple sneezes. Choo, 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 choo. That like she had no, seemed to be, have no ability to stop. And, and so everybody would, it would go silent as we just waited for it to finish this <laughs> couple of minutes of sneeze. And then, and then we had another fella whose sneeze seemed to build up. And sometimes her sneezing would trigger his. You know, like, guys, we're never going to ever finish. This is crazy. There you go. So anyway, I thought I'd try and give you some of the lessons that I've learned along the way, not just madness and not just crazy stories. See, for me, the important thing is that we see uh, a community of believers as the church and not Sunday attendants. You know, there's people that we're in and around, people that we're working with and serving who find our gatherings really very difficult. I think about my best mate, Steve. Steve, uh, by very nature, his life was complex. He was a man battling addiction, a man who, who grew up in um, the Catholic Church and had faced abuse um, as a child. This is a man who felt so unworthy and so dirty and yet hated the idea of being in a church setting. I couldn't get him through the doors. But this is a man who was pursuing Jesus. This is a man who loved to pray, loved when I broke open the Bible with him. But for him to sit in a service was really, really very difficult. But yet he and his partner Debbie would take keys to my house and they would um, while I was at church, they would make the lunch. They would cook a roast dinner often, and we'd get home to find the table laid and the smell of roast chicken. I'd be welcomed in to my house and told to sit down, and then we'd begin to share the meal together. And the mealtime would be focused around what had just happened at church. Tell me how it went, Sam. And I'd begin to open the scriptures and I'd, I'd do my best to regurgitate the talk. And it would lead us into these deep and wonderful conversations about the goodness and grace of God that I just loved. It was like church, but better because there's food and there was the relaxed environment. And I was just absolutely craved these moments as we sort of dug into God together. 
And I thought, if I begin to bring other people into this setting, if I, if I surround them with a, a body and a, and a community of believers, then maybe this is the church that will journey my friend into discipleship and into following Christ. And for ages I was like, oh, but it won't do and it won't be enough. And I worried about Debbie, who seemed to just sit on the periphery, never contributing, always a little bit cynical. And then one day, one Sunday, my Alfie began to express his doubts in, uh, in whether Jesus was real. Um, my little boy, I think was probably like seven or something at the time, begins to say, oh, I don't even think Jesus is real. And then Debs kicks in. And she's like, are you mad? Are you mad? How can Jesus not be real? And then she begins to school my boy, like regurgitating the riches of his grace and his mercy. And I'm like, she was listening all along, taking it in by osmosis. And she began to listen to the goodness of God. And here she is now discipling my boy and saying, are you mad? How could it not be true? Have you seen what he's done? Have you heard about what he does? And I'm like, thank you, Jesus. There is a way. But actually, often we thank just you. Thank you, mate. But often we expect people to conform, don't we? We have a way of doing things. If you could just sit silently for an hour, we'll count you as in, we'll count you as connected. Actually, I want people to be connected more really to the people of God, to Christ through his people, a community of believers. So let's make sure we don't expect Sunday attendance, bums on pews, to be the sign of success that we're winning. Actually, uh, the work that we're doing is far deeper, far greater, far more significant. And it's more likely to happen outside the doors and outside of a Sunday setting. So just keep going. Next thing, let's guard against mission without discipleship. I think when we moved in, we, were like, we felt like we were the cavalry that had come to rescue a neighborhood. You know, we'd, we were all fiery young evangelists that had relocated in. So revival would, would quickly follow and run its way through the neighborhood and we'd be planting churches left, right and center. We actually saw some incredible salvation stories. More than really that would blow your mind. It felt like every time we talked to people about Jesus and said, do you want to be his friend? Everyone said, yes, yes, yes. You know, we were the Salvation Army. I planted a church for the army and we were told we couldn't baptize people, but I was listening and looking at what Christ said. And so we built a secret baptistry, which got me very much in trouble. And we were baptizing lots of people on a regular basis. But many salvations, lots of baptisms, but not many followers, not many disciples. We were all sold out for mission, but we hadn't put in place solid discipleship. And we realized after a couple of years of seeing many saved and many lost. You know, we began to look into the parable of the sower and see that so often we were, we were casting seed here, left, right and center, seeing stuff grow up. And then as soon as anything difficult, anything complex, anything chaotic came, we were losing people because we hadn't done the hard work of discipleship in people's lives. We began to realize that we'd only gotten half of the Great Commission. Therefore, go and make disciples and baptize them. And then we were stopping there. We were failing to see verse 20, which talks about teaching them to obey all that I have said. 
And we began to think we've got to do greater, deeper work to begin to teach the ways of Christ. Discipleship is done best in community. Often you'll hear about people saying it needs to be life on life. I think it's actually deeper than that. I think it's lives on life. You know, we talk about it taking a village to raise a child. I think actually discipleship is done best in community. I think about my neighbour, Tommy. Uh, Tommy is an Irish alcoholic, someone who battled addiction for many, many years. He's in and out of my house. He would spend 24-7 in my house if he could. I haven't got enough energy, enough love sometimes. Sometimes I'm empty of hope for Tommy. But actually, as a community of believers, we can better serve his needs. We can, I can begin to find people who have got grace for him when I haven't, can be hospitable to him when I've run out of hospitality, if that's even a thing. You know, I used to send Tommy to a different person's house each and every night, knowing that within the community of believers, we could better serve him. I talk about the killer whale technique. How the orcas kill whales, never on their own, always in the pack. And that's how we bring down some of the most difficult and chaotic people in our communities. We have to work together. What we found is often we'd have our, our, our kind of pet projects that this one's mine and I'll, I'll see him through to discipleship. If I just journey the hard years with him, actually it never works well like that. When we build this dependence on us, for me, it came to land once when, um, when I, I, I used to have a lot of people want to come and visit our community. And I'd give them what I called the safari tour or the zoo tour. They'd want to see scary and dangerous things from a safe distance. And so I'd walk them the streets and show them where, where you could buy drugs or where prostitutes work. And I'd say, don't look now. And they'd all be like, oh, you know, that kind of thing. We arrived at my friend Steve's house, finished the tour. And Steve came out and I said, Steve, what was it like living around here? And he told some great stories. And I said, what, what's it been like working with me? You know, what's it, what's it like working with the church? And then Steve said this. He said, oh, I just want you to know that Sam is my rock. Now, what a lovely thing to say. But the condemnation that I hit my heart in that moment, and I sort of whisked them away, packaged them off and sort of uh, like, oh, off you go on the way. And they said, oh, thank you so much. And then I went back to Steve and I was like, Steve, I've got this wrong. There's one called the rock and it ain't me. I am going to fail you. I'm going to run out of love, but there's one that won't. Sometimes I'm going to find it difficult to forgive you, but there's one that won't. You know, trust in him. And actually what, we, what I'd done is over time, I'd built this he'd built this reliance on me as the provider and therefore ultimately the saviour. And actually, if I'd better shared him out amongst the community of believers, we'd have brought him to Christ and not to us. So, let's not make ourselves Christ. I hear that amongst the church. It's a bit of a bugbear of mine. It's okay if you use it. People say, let's be Jesus to people. Let's let Jesus be Jesus. Let's live lives that turn people towards him. I don't want to stand in the way of the Savior. And I know that phrase doesn't mean that, but we've got to be careful. It's important that we have a culture of discipleship. 
Now, discipleship isn't just for those that we're ministering to. It's actually important that each of us are being discipled and that our discipleship journey is clear and evident to those that we are being ministered to. And actually, sometimes when we allow those that we've gone to serve to begin to disciple us, that becomes a very special moment. A few years back, I, um, I went to see Steve, pick him up. I was taking him to a drug appointment. And um, when, I got, when he got in the car, he saw on my face that I was a, a broken man. And he said to me, Sam, what's, what's going on? And I said, oh, Steve, I don't want to talk about it. He said, please, Sam, share what's going on. And my wife and I had, had struggled with infertility for years and years and years, and it had been another one of those months where we weren't going to be having babies. In fact, we'd just got test results that showed that together we would never make babies. And I was broken. I was in bits. Trying to hold it together to, to look after Steve. And uh, I just, in this moment, just gushed before him. And he beautifully picked me up. And he began to teach me truth. He began to just share Christ to me. He began to just pour out grace and mercy and and lead me to Jesus in that moment. He's discipling me. I've gone there to fix him. And he's doing his best to get around me and bring me to Jesus. He's praying for me in that moment. And in his words where he's got no Christianese and I'm just like broken before him. As he's bringing me to Jesus and saying, God, would you help us? God, would you help us? And then after he's done his amen bit, he says, Sam, I'm going to journey this with you. And you're going to do it. You're going to do adoption and you're going to be a dad. And I'm going to be the uncle. (laughs) And he said, in my family, in my family, the uncle gets to buy the first pet. And so if you buy a pet, then I'm not the uncle. And I'm like, I know, like Steve, Steve loves the worst of animals. Steve, like, Steve's got a snake, a tarantula, and a dog called Havoc, which is half pit bull and half wolf. Like, no, you can't. But he's like, no, we're going to journey this, and I will be the uncle. Amazingly, we got two rabbits. <laughs> Steve is their uncle, and he loves them, and he's dear to them, and they love him. It's important that we invest in genuine relationships. Often we form relationships, don't we, for the purpose of salvation. Like we'll get alongside, we talk about, but we never want to blur the lines a little bit. And so we, if we're not careful, we begin to create these relationships, which if, yeah we're not wise, begin to be manipulative by nature. Firstly, I think it's important that each of us recognise our need for relationship. It's the way that we've been designed. It's the way that we've been made and actually forming relationships, even with those that you serve. And I know we've got to look at professional boundaries and all that stuff. But as we begin to minister as Christ would have us, I think he would want us to form proper relationships. It's interesting, I was, I was thinking about Christ in the chaos and did Christ have a church that he went to, which was a bit messy. I've been preaching through Luke's gospel to the staff at the message and I've gotten to Luke 22 when Jesus brings them to the meal that he says he's been an, um, eagerly anticipating. 
It's the last meal he'll have before he dies. He sends his disciples ahead of him to prepare the place. And, and when he goes up there, we know what happens. He, he, he strips down to a towel and begins to wash the feet of his disciples. And then at the table, he breaks bread and he, he, he shows them a cup. And he says, this is my body and this is my blood. It's the most powerful moment, the greatest meal of all time. And their response is to fight about who's the greatest. It's so profound. The people that Jesus surrounded himself with. And then he begins to tell them about what's going to happen. And, and Peter is adamant that he won't, he won't deny him. But yet at the table is a denier and there's a, a betrayer. And yet this is who Jesus has surrounded himself with. And he said, you know, Jesus tells them what they're going to need in the next season, a bag for this and that. And, you know, Jesus mentions the sword and they're like, we've got two swords, we're up for a fight. And Jesus is like, ah. I think it says in the passage, Jesus says, that's enough. And people think it means Jesus says two swords is enough. But when you look at it in the Hebrew, it means I've had enough. I'm kind of done. Like he's surrounded by people who on the last meal that they have together, after he's completed all his investment with them, still are fighting amongst each other. It's absolutely fascinating. But Jesus invested deeply in relationships. Recognize your need for friendships. Allow even to be served. That's the, one of the greatest secrets for me has been allowing those that I've gone to serve to serve me. And actually in this moment, there's this balance, the power dynamic that gets shifted as we allow those around us to serve us. I was um, once invited to a guy's house who, a uh, major heroin addict, house was a real, real mess. There's no wallpaper on the walls, no carpet on the floor. They'd been taking down um, the fence of the mosque nearby to burn it in the fire to keep warm at winter. It was a real state. And, and, and it, the house seemed to attract uh, drug addicts to them. It was a bit of a den. Um, I went round one time and I was offered a cup of tea. And I said, yes, because one of my rules is if you're offered provision, if, you're, if someone offers to serve you, it's really essential that you accept it. There's something significant there. So this fella takes a cup from the table that you can only describe as an ashtray, takes it with him to the kitchen, and I hear the tap go on as he swirls it clean, and he shouts, do you want sugar? And I say, turn! <laughs> Comes back with this mug, still dirty on the outside, full of tea. Now, at this moment, I could have said, you know what, mate? I only live around the corner. I've got one of them fancy pod machines. Come to my house, let me serve you. But the power of taking the mug from a man who's having to burn down the fence of the mosque in order to keep warm at winter, and he's got milk and it's not off, and he's got a tea bag and he's got 10 sugars. This is a man who's got something and he wants to give it to me, and suddenly it's important as things begin to shift. And so that has been something I've really chosen to do. If it's safe to go in someone's house, receive a welcome, it's so important to pass through the threshold of someone's lives. And so it's been weird actually receiving gifts. You know, my mate Steve, I was almost always about Steve. Um, one particular day he invited me round because he said he'd made something for my girl Willow. And uh, I was like, all right, what's this going to be? Went round, threw into the back room, and there on the table is this sheet 
covering something. And he kind of pulls it off in this, ta-da. And there is this beautiful doll's house. And I'm like, where have you got out from? And he said, I've made it. What do you mean you've made it? I've been working on it. This is a guy who's in his 50s who's never had a job because he's been out stealing for drugs. And he's been working on this beautiful doll's house, two-story, opening uh, to a full facade. And he said, I just need to finish it off. Because every room had got carpets in, because he'd been to the carpet shop to ask for the ends of the rolls. He wallpapered each of the rooms. His own house had no wallpaper. And he's, and he's saying, I've just got to finish off the electrics so I can put lights in. I'm like, what my daughter doesn't need is an electrified doll's house. <laughs> But this is him, and he's providing for me. It's beautiful, and it's his pride of joy. And he's like, can I be there when she opens it? I'm like, yes, you can. Of course you can. This is your moment. It's beautiful, receiving gifts. But I've had some random ones, <laughs> absolute random ones. Once I went round to drop off a lad that I'd been mentoring, and his mum was waiting for me with a gift that I unwrapped. And it was a shirt from, well, I can only... Describe it like something from Braveheart or something. It laced up at the front. <laughs> I've never worn a lace-up shirt. I look like some kind of pirate. And uh, I was thinking, I'm going to have to wear it every Thursday when I go and drop a son off. Look at my shirt. <laughs> once, what, once got a Wedgwood plate as well, which was um, given away to my mum. But it's important, isn't it, that we address the power balance. Who's serving and who's receiving? Actually, that is often wrong. Always accept a welcome. Let's keep things moving. Um, holding a low bar for service. Again, as Christians, we sort of are so good at asking questions like, who's worthy to be on a team? And um, who's good enough? And who's holy enough? And who's ready? Are they ready to join the rotor? I just wonder if we need to just drop that a little bit and actually allow people to participate. And I know that at times has made things real messy for me. Like, why have you got them doing that? I had a lad who once brought to um, a, like a bring and share meal a blue cake. And, um, uh, you know, and he was well known within the church. And, and because of his sort of hygiene issues, no one at the end of the bring and share meal had touched the cake. The cake was still completely there and completely blue. And, uh, and he came up to me and said, nobody likes what I have made. And like in that moment, my heart broke. I thought, flipping heck, this is a man who's gone out and found the stuff and he's designed the cake. And yet the church that he participates in won't participate in what he has brought. And I... I, to, I said, give me a fork. And I took this cake, and I saw everybody's eyes looking, he's going to eat the cake. <laughs> and of course I'm going to eat the cake. Of course I'm going to eat the cake, and I'm going to drink the cup. I'm going to drink the cup that looks mucky, because there's <laughs> more to life than this, isn't it? It's so important that we do that. For a while, we had a, a man that was um, a, a trans man that would um, come, never, ever spoke in church, but he just loved to serve people tea and coffee. And the amount of remarks I'd have about this, this person, why, why, why do we think he's ready to be on a rotor? 
Look at this man, he's so deeply broken. But that man, a few months later, was found dismembered in a suitcase on the canal near my house. But this is a man who had found his place amongst the people of God, serving the people of God. And I never got to sit with him and make sure he prayed the prayer and gone through the courses and and achieved all that he needed to do to be worthy to stand behind the bar in order to serve God's people a cup of tea. But yet he found his home amongst the people of God. And I'm not going to shift that. Sometimes we lift a bar that is just never attainable for people that we love and know. I think some of this stuff is hard. I think some of the stuff that I've experienced probably most painfully has been those that I've invested in and then the hard miles with that then disappear. I met a young uh, lady in our, during school's work who was from a very, very broken home and she then began to come to youth club and she fell in love with Jesus and in doing so brought her own brother to Christ and... Um, she was just wonderful. And she excelled, really, from almost the moment of encountering Jesus. Life shifted in a way that I've never really seen. She finished school. She went to college. That's me saying, stop. Um, she um, went on to do a degree, became a social worker. And as we were journeying through the adoption process, she held our hand, too. She lived just across the road. When my little willow came to live with us, she helped as the carer. She was our support network. Then one Sunday morning, as I led the service, there was visitors in the church I hadn't seen for a few years. And so I welcomed them from the stage. What I didn't know was that man that I welcomed was her abuser. She left that church that day and has never spoken to me since. My heart breaks for that stuff. This is a girl who is so wounded by my actions, my good, well-intentioned actions, But this is a girl who cut us all off. Never has been to church since. She rejected Jesus because of my mistake. And as innocent as I believe it was, it hurts me to this day. She's just sat there in my recommended friends on Facebook. And every day I want to click at. And I know she'll say no. And my heart breaks. The loss that I faced, I think when we've done the hard miles with people whose lives are complex. But I would say, keep going. I've got loads of things that I could say, but I've probably got to stop. I suppose I'll finish with this point before I take any questions. Is that we need to up our expectations of God. Ah, he loves. How he loves those that we work with and those that we minister to. I just want to finish by saying God can do more than we could ask or imagine. God is able to bring change and transformation. And, and, and actually, as we, as we presence ourselves with him and rely increasingly upon him and his power, working through us, we need to expect, need to have greater expectation that God is participating with us. Sometimes I empty myself of all my love and all my hope and all faith 
And actually, it's in God that those things are renewed and strengthened to enable me to go out again to serve. But I've got to keep expecting that God hasn't finished, that God has an answer to chaos, that God can bring order, that God is the one who redeems and restores. We've got to build ourselves up. This is why this is so important, that we get together with like-minded individuals and go, we're going to pursue Christ again. We believe he's got an answer for our communities. So let me pray as I finish. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you abound in the great things that we need. Lord, we thank you that the scriptures tell us of your wealth, that you are rich in mercy, rich in grace, rich in compassion, rich in kindness. Lord, we say pour out your riches upon us. Lord, make us prosper in the gifts that you give. Lord, help us and sustain us as we go out in your name to serve the most broken and hurting people in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much to Sam Ward and thank you for joining us today. Do subscribe to hear more fresh content from this year's Churches That Change Communities Conference as it's released over the coming weeks. And if you've enjoyed this seminar, why not send it on to someone else you think would find it helpful? And join us for the next episode of the Jubilee Plus podcast. Underneath the shelter of your